Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of ClearedCast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today I am joined by some incredible folks that support NASA, Brian Key and Scott Bellamy. So in 2022, a NASA team turned science fiction into reality. These NASA managers joining me today directed a project that, for the first time in history, redirected a planetary object and demonstrated humanity's ability to hit and deflect a potentially catastrophic asteroid. So while that asteroid poses no threat to our planet, it is classified as a near-Earth object that could cause significant damage to the globe if a collision actually occurred. So Key and Bellamy's work is informing future efforts to deflect such hazardous planetary objects. So really, really cool work, and I'm so honored that you both are joining me today. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Yes, thank you, Katie. So to say that the things NASA employees do is cool is a massive understatement, in my opinion. We've had others from the agency join us, and I really love all of the stories that I've heard. So whether that's about a NASA rocket scientist who just had a love for reaching younger kids, and the agency actually let her pivot to do that. And I had another guest who was a top NASA engineer who spent 40 years at the organization and really transforming it entirely. So I am really excited to hear a little bit about both of your stories today. And so I thought that we could start with how long you both have been at NASA and what you love doing at the agency. So Brian, I'll let you go first. Uh, Yes, thank you. I've been working for NASA for 34 years and I was a contractor for NASA five years before that. So quite a long time, and the thing I enjoy the most about my job, my many jobs that I've had in my time here, is the wide variety of things that we get to work on. I mean, there's ground tests, flight tests, manned space, exploration, I mean, just running the whole gambit, uh, and, and it's just been amazing in the whole 39 years I've been here. Well, and Brian, so transitioning from a contractor to an employee of NASA directly, tell me a little bit about how that transition went, because I do speak with a lot of folks who are interested in trying out both. So tell us a little bit about how that process went for you. It was actually rather smooth. I was actually working on a project for NASA as a a thermal engineer. They opened up a position on that same project that I was already working on. So I applied for it and was lucky enough to get it. That's good to hear. And so Scott, what about you? How long have you been at the agency and what do you love about working for NASA? I first came to Marshall as the Air Force liaison officer to Marshall from Space Command in 2008. Uh, January uh, about that time uh, because I retired from the Air Force after 25 and a half years but I worked as a liaison officer for a couple of years uh, retired and came back basically doing the same job as a contractor for four years until this wonderful opportunity uh, in the planetary missions program office opened up in uh, for me in 2013 I found a guy that used to be the chief engineer in the office. Uh, I was in a meeting with him and I was like, hey, 
what do you know about this position? And he just became so dynamic and excited about explaining it to me. And it was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to apply for this. And so uh, Brian and his predecessor decided to hire me into NASA as a an employee. And so I've been there ever since. And I just love the job because it's so cool. We had the first ever mission to you know, fly past Pluto. We have several missions that are several things that have, we have a mission to Jupiter right now. One of my other missions is getting ready to go to Jupiter. My first mission is the one that's bringing back the United States' first ever sample of an asteroid. You know, now I've worked on the first ever attempt to change the trajectory of an asteroid. It's all the firsts is what is so exciting. And like Brian said, it, you know, I, I've worked on the manned spaceflight side and I now work on the robotic mission side. There's just such a variety of things to play with or you know, get involved with. It just, it seems to be easy to find your passion you know, working with NASA. Sure. And that's definitely been echoed in my previous conversations is just the mission is so cool. And so I'd love to hear, you know, Scott, you were in the Air Force, Brian, it sounds like engineering is what brought you to the agency. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your backgrounds. I'm interested to hear if NASA is strictly looking for technical talent. Scott, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit more about your background and your opinion on that. I'll start with the opinion on that. It's like, no, NASA is not looking for just technical talent because we need talent in many different areas to you know, keep the enterprise going. You have IT, business management, personnel. It's a law, and, you know, not just technical, and, you know, but in the technical, you need every single type of engineer and scientist out there. For me, it started when I was about seven years old. I, I It wasn't a paper I had to do for school or something. It's just... One day I was sitting in my room and I started writing, you know, I wanted to become an engineer uh, so that I could join the Air Force, become a test pilot, go to test pilot school, and then apply for astronaut training. As early as seven, I knew my path that I was building. I wanted to eventually get to NASA. Uh, I remember sitting on my grandmother's couch watching Apollo 13 as it happened live. The movie was wonderful, but, you know, I was watching that live. And so that definitely influenced me. I've always had a love for space. Well, and so, Brian, what about you? Did it start from such a young age that you wanted to support NASA? Oh, his story's much better. Actually, it did. <laughs> I grew up in Titus, Florida, which is a stone's throw away from Kennedy Space Center. My dad actually worked for NASA at Kennedy Space Center. I can remember all through elementary school, you know, junior high, high school, all the launches that went off back in those days and in the, you know, the mid to late 60s and 70s. You know, I would go out to my backyard and just watch from my backyard and, and feel the sound wave as it gets to me, you know, after launch and, and you know, you hear the, the windows in your house rattling. It, it, it was just awe-inspiring, and that's really what drove me to uh, want to excel in, in math and science and go down the path of engineering so that I could work on things like that. I mean, that's one of the things that drove me when I was young. Sure. That proximity, I, I'm sure, was just incredible. And so you both managed an amazing team 
that, again, in my intro provided the first ever planetary defense. And so walk us through how you built that team once you identified the threat and then kind of what happened from there. So I'll, I'll let you choose who starts this one. Let me start off first by saying it, it wasn't quite in that order. <laughs> we didn't actually identify the threat. We identified the possibility of an impact from an asteroid and how would we address it. And this happened many, many, many years ago as Scott will relay in a minute when I turn it over to him. It, it was sort of more of a, that a proposal was put forth on how to address that type of situation. And then once that proposal was approved, we started to put together the team and actually most of the team was already formed because they developed the proposal. It really wasn't difficult to put together the right group of people. They were already on board, but that's the order in which it happened. And I'll let Scott sort of take it from there. We've known for a long time that there are asteroids out there that pose a potential threat, specifically the ones that cross Earth's orbit. You know, their orbits are such that most of the time, twice a year, they will cross either in front of Earth or behind Earth, depending on how long their orbit is compa compared to ours. So we've known about it for a very long time. You know, we had the Chicxulub asteroid that is suspected of being the dinosaur killer. Its largest axis is, you know, estimated to be 10 to 15 kilometers. Tunguska in 1908, it was suspected to be somewhere between 60 and 190 meters. And if you've seen pictures, you know it flattened miles and miles of trees. And more recently in 2013, the Chayabinsk asteroid estimated to be roughly 20 meters, and it was a uh, airburst above Russia, shattered windows and produced millions of dollars. So the community has been increasingly talking about this for a long time. And many years ago, NASA published a paper, and as a stimulating factor, Congress you know, produced some legislation directing NASA to start searching for asteroids that are potentially hazardous. Anything from four meters in their largest axis, 25, 160, 10,000. You know, the ones that are that large size, we think that we have definitely identified that there are only four of them out there that, you know, pose a threat. But then when you get anything, you know, like 160 meters or larger, you know, those are the ones that we know can penetrate the atmosphere. And if they hit in a metropolitan area, they would produce large damage. Most of the asteroids, fortunately, that come to Earth and make it through the atmosphere of like, you know, 25 meters or so, uh, they tend to end up in the ocean because there's so much, you know, open water between, you know, here and Europe on both sides that there's you know, lots of water for them to impact into. So targeted the Didymos system. Didymos is a binary system. You have the larger body that is 780 meters of mean diameter and its smaller companion that is now named Dimorphos, that's 160 meters in uh, diameter, roughly. And that binary system was selected because it could never pose an actual threat to Earth during you know, this experiment. Its orbit is such that it's not going to be a problem. And you know, performing this small experiment with those two bodies 
could not produce any threat to Earth itself. That's why it was targeted. And so the one of the lead scientists named Andy Chang at APL was thinking about, you know, how do we actually demonstrate a kinetic impactor against a real body? Because you have roughly four different ways to uh, deal with an asteroid that we know of now. Kinetic impact, nuclear, you know, try to vaporize as much of it as you can. Gravity tractor, where you try to put something big enough next to the asteroid that you influence its trajectory. Or more like a pusher spacecraft where you, you know, gently nuzzle up against the asteroid and then you use the thrusters to, you know, push the asteroid into a different trajectory. Uh, Two key features of any of these is you have to detect the asteroid early enough to be able to do something about it. And to detect it early enough generally means that it's, you know, fairly distant. And so you need to be able to get there fast enough to influence the trajectory before it gets, you know, significantly close to Earth, because all you're trying to do is produce a small change in the angle of its trajectory compared to Earth so that it misses us. The closer it is when you find it, the less time you have to respond, and the more intense your effort has to be to actually move it and change the trajectory by a large enough angle. I kind of went long on that, so I hope I answered what you were asking. <laughs> Yeah, lots of moving parts, it sounds like, and kind of finding that that perfect moment to to change the trajectory, but make sure you're not too late, but make sure that it is within a distance that you can reach it. I mean, thank you for schooling us on the order of how all of that went down. It really sounds like, you know, at NASA, whether you are in that technical role or not, you just really need to to be curious and think about those hypothetical scenarios when it comes to some of these experiments. And so for managing that incredible team, You both are honorees for the Partnership for Public Services Samuel J. Heyman Service to America Medal, which showcases outstanding public servants who improve our lives for the better, which obviously this does. How does it feel to be in this position? And did you ever think you would make such an impact? So, Brian, let's hear from you first. First of all, it's wonderful. I mean, I'm so honored and thankful to be able to represent the team because This was definitely a team effort working through this uh, dark mission and creating the impactor and, you know, getting it launched and actually seeing it work and work wonderfully. It's just an honor. And I never really took on this type of job to receive these types of honors. The job itself is rewarding enough. I mean, this is just icing on the cake to be recognized in this, uh, this manner. Sure. Scott, what about you? Brian said it greatly. It's like this this is a great honor and it was never even on my radar. We we're very happy to be honorees and I appreciate that we were nominated. Just working with the team, having this kind of effort to pursue, you know, working at the team and with the team and building those relationships and, you know, helping them achieve something like this, you know, being in the control room, you know, and watching, you know, just the release of emotion after, you know, impact was confirmed successful. It's just amazing to that reward there of seeing something that went so well and so much 
was poured into getting to that point. It's that that's the kind of thing that makes it wonderful. It's we greatly appreciate being you know, being nominated, and that's that is something I think I'm still kind of struggling with. <laughs> it, it's not real yet. <laughs> well, and I mean, it sounds like. You, you both had an amazing team behind you. And that's one of the other things I've heard about why folks stay at NASA so long. It's just it really incredible people that you're working with. And you mentioned that you both had your sights on NASA as kids. And so what advice would you offer to kids who may be interested in sort of out of this world jobs like yours, or even adults who might be trying to pivot to such an amazing organization? So Scott, let's start with you. What advice would you offer to listeners? Understand your passion and look for the opportunities that put you on the path to achieve that. And just work and towards it and don't be afraid to modify you know your trajectory <laughs> sorry <laughs> modify your own trajectory along the way uh yeah because uh you know i did things a little bit backwards i, I kind of wanted to go to the air force academy but i ended up having to enlist in the air force and then work on my engineering degree in my off-duty time, I kept my goal in front of me, and I uh, got to the point where I could apply for an Air Force program to let me finish my degree full time. And then I became an officer, and and then I finally, you know, I played and I you know, did rocket propulsion tests for quite a while, and I just kept inching closer and closer till I was finally able to get this position that I'm in, and you know, realize that, you know, I had something I was pushing towards. And even though I had to modify the path along the way, I still eventually got there. I'm not an astronaut. I'm not a fighter pilot, but I am still working at NASA in a very rewarding position. Well, and I think that those words are probably helpful for those that are enlisted and maybe listening to this. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, Brian, what about you? What advice would you offer to kids maybe interested in NASA or adult listeners? The advice I would offer is basically to understand that it's not just technical and scientific people that work here. It's business related, lawyers, schedulers, accountants, all sorts of people. It, it takes all disciplines, all backgrounds to, to make our missions effective and make them work. Um, and if you have the desire to be in this type of environment, you can come with what you're good at. And I'm sure that there's probably a place for you. Great. That's so good to hear. And so I do have to ask, Scott, you mentioned Apollo 13. And so I know Hollywood embellishes things from our industry, but I do have mine or at least one of them in mind. But do you have a favorite movie that kind of touches this space, whether about asteroids, astronauts or aliens or something like that? So, Brian, do you have a favorite movie? Actually, there's probably several that I would cite. 2001 Space Odyssey is, is one of them, but uh, others are also uh, good depictions of uh, the kind of work that we're now doing. So, Scott, what about you? You said Apollo 13. Any others? Oh, I, what I love most about Apollo 13 and not just, you know, my original experience was that, you know, Ron Howard and his team were 
stayed very faithful to the original events as much as they possibly could. And flight director Gene Krantz, uh, after he reviewed it, it was a very faithful recreation with some conversations that they had no way of knowing about. So there was you know, some liberty that they had to take, but it was excellent. And it's an excellent motivator, I think, too. As Brian said, there were many. You know, 2001, 2010, uh, especially that line at the end of 2010, all these worlds are yours except for Europa. Make no attempt to land there. Uh, that's actually one of my other missions. I grew up with Star Trek. Uh, I used to, it came on at 10 o'clock and my mom would, you know, I was little, you know, maybe five, whatever. And my mom would make me go to, or, uh, make me go to bed. And so that, and she would set up and watch the original Star Trek series, I would get out of bed and sneak around to the corner of the entrance into the living room so that I could sit there and watch Star Trek too. <laughs> so if you could see the wall behind me, it's like I have almost every single book written about Star Trek, most of the ones Star Wars. Uh, one of my other favorites was the series Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, 2001, 2010. You could almost just throw a dart at one of the movies, and, you know, it's something that I, I love. I, I don't want to really try to pick a specific as a favorite. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, I got to tell you both, I was thinking about it before our conversation, and I got to say my favorite Martian, Christopher Lloyd. I just... <laughs> That one's a little sillier. I mean, the suit and the ice cream. And there are so many, so many great ones. I really appreciate you both joining me for this conversation. If listeners want to learn more on how to get a job at NASA or NASA careers, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com. This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of ClearedCast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.